Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, by habit to Romans chapter 3. Again, not a Christmassy sounding sermon uh, in this season. It will be much more so next Sunday morning, but still further explanation of why Christ had to come and do what he did in becoming one of us in order to ultimately give his life for us because of our sin. I think we're on our eighth sermon in this section of Romans, which the big category was just the word of sin or the sinfulness of man, also set in the context that the wrath of God is going to be poured out against sin. It already, as Romans 1.18 tells us, and ultimately, as Romans 2 showed us, will be spelled out fully in Judgment Day. But God has just shown the reasons why Blatantly immoral people in the second half of Romans 1 are under the wrath of God. Why even self-righteous, judgmental, I'm not as bad as others people are under the judgment of God. And how even most stunning of all and most difficult of all for many to accept the law-living and circumcised Jews of Romans 2, the second half of the chapter, are also going to perish. In chapter 3, rather than go to a fourth group, or move on to the next topic, Paul circles back to further address what he opened up in verses 17 to 29 of chapter 2. Came across a quote this week that isn't on the slide, but I think is fitting here. There's nothing our sin hates more than to hear God say, I'm talking to you. And so in a sense here, Paul, after already body blow after body blow, to common Jewish beliefs that God had promised them eternal life with his covenant, no matter what, Paul is now going to address either some very real objections or some imaginary ones. Uh, Imagine ones, some some that he's putting forth as uh, common ones that were raised. Uh, Remember here that Paul was a circumcised Jew himself and once a law-thumping Pharisee. And that on all of his missionary journeys, he would go first in most communities into the synagogues and reason with the Jews about the gospel and the necessity of it for salvation. So we could say he's heard it all, every imaginable objection from the Jews about the necessity of Christ and the gospel and the sufficiency of Christ. John Stott says, we can go one. Paul was not content only to proclaim and expound the gospel. He also argued its truth and reasonableness and defended it against misunderstanding and misrepresentation. And in this particular case, he saw that the character of God was at stake. Paul put it this way himself in 2 Corinthians 10.5 when talking about the spiritual warfare that he and the other apostles and the other evangelists faced whenever they came into strongholds against the gospel. And these are things we're also called to do, as we'll talk about at the end. But that we are out to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And to bring it all under obedience to Christ. And then Douglas Moo, as he sets his gospel before the Roman Christians, 
we find Paul repeatedly positing his arguments to deal with questions that he knows his readers will be asking or to dismiss false conclusions he fears they may be drawing. Everybody says, as you read about this and begin to study it, that this is perhaps the hardest section in Romans uh, to explain. And it is in terms of all that, that is going on here, uh, and you'll see some of that challenge and difficulty as we go through it. But here's how a few people have organized this, if perhaps it's helpful to you to see uh, what Paul is doing here in these first eight verses. John MacArthur alleges there's three primary objections, that Paul was attacking God's people, attacking God's premises, and attacking God's purity. John Stott says that Paul reaffirmed four things, God's covenant as having abiding value, his faithfulness to his premises, his justice as a judge, and his true glory promoted only by good, never by evil. But the one that maybe was most helpful for me was Rob Ventura's, uh, even though it's hard to fit everything into this nice, neat little categorizing system as well. But in essence, he says there's four main questions, the odd-numbered verses, and there's four short answers, the even-numbered verses, um, and most of the odd-numbered are also double questions or double ways of wording things um, to get us to the final conclusion of their condemnation being just. Naturally. Would you please follow along as I read Romans 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Our Lord, now as we come to this portion of your word, we acknowledge again that we do not live by bread alone, but on every word is your people that proceeds from your mouth. So today, through Romans 3, please give us our daily bread of your word and your truth, and by it nourish our hearts and souls and minds, that we would love you more, love your word and truth more, and live lives that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Please use this portion of Romans to make straight any of our thinking that is crooked or corrupted by our human nature, or by this world. And please purify and enlarge our thoughts of you to be worthy of you. We ask in your name. Amen. 
So, put forth to you the first of the questions following Ventura's little, and some people separate verses one and two out as really belonging to, to uh, chapter two yet, um, and that the real opposition begins in verse three. But this follows the same pattern of asking a couple of questions and then giving a short answer. And so the first objection is, is there any value? Is there any profit? Is there any advantage? Is it really a blessing as we were told throughout the Old Testament? And so this is an accusation about God perhaps being misleading to say that he's given all these blessings to his people, but then not saving them automatically through those things. So they're asking what good has it ultimately done if it doesn't result in salvation? Does it really have any true value or significance? And Paul's answer is interesting. We expect him perhaps to say, well, in the long run, none. (laughs) You still have to have faith. Those other things are now what's going to save you. He's pressed that point out in chapter two. But instead, he responds with the opposite. Much in every way. You are overlooking all kinds of blessings that have come to God through the covenant that he's given you um, or given Israel. And Paul here seems to then begin to answer that, to begin with. But it's an interesting phrase because it's the only advantage he acknowledges. In other words, to begin with sounds like it's going to be a list. Now, when we get to Romans chapter 9 in about a year, Verses two and three and four will spell out a number of those other advantages and blessings. But here, he zeroes in on just one, but an advantage he's saying that's even greater than the value of circumcision or greater than the value of just being ethnically Jewish. And that is that you got the oracles of God. You were given his words his utterances, if you want, as literal of a translation of oracles, his sayings, his message, his special revelation, which came to be known, and now either that we've referred to as the Old Testament or the sacred scriptures. Out of all the people and all the nations, God chose to reveal and give that to you. Spell out in those oracles clearly, plainly, much easier for us to see than many, many other people, is all the truth any Jew or Gentile would need to know in order to be saved. And that's somewhat proven through what Paul writes to Timothy in his second letter, where he says of Timothy, from childhood, you've been acquainted, you've been taught by your mother and your grandmother, the sacred writings. And here's what he puts as the descriptor. Those words which are able to make you wise for salvation, to see the wisdom of God and through faith in Christ Jesus, be born again, be saved by God. So a couple of thoughts, Tom Schreiner, circumcision and being Jewish are true advantages, although they are not the kind of advantages we're thinking of if we wrongly suppose that one can be saved by them. Ventura. Yes, being Jewish had a great advantage. However, it did not have an absolute advantage. It had abundant benefit, but not an ultimate salvific benefit from God. So a couple of problems with the Jews. One was that they didn't know what God God said. was not that they didn't know what God said, but that they put 
the teachings and the traditions of man over the words of God. That ultimately man's explanations of what God was saying came to be taken as the absolute truth rather than looking at all the oracles of God himself. And then many in Israel focused on the blessings promised for obedience while overlooking God's warnings about the consequence of disobedience. And that's probably most clearly laid out in the end of Deuteronomy where before they enter the promised land, God lays out the blessings and the curses. To every Jew who responds to the oracles of God, both the promises for all those who keep the law perfectly and the promises for all those who don't but put their trust in God, providing a Messiah to save them, God is faithful to save. The problem for the Jews was not that God didn't give them advantages, but that they didn't take full advantage of those advantages to really understand what he was saying about salvation and justification coming through faith alone and not through the keeping of the law, not through knowing the law and teaching it, not through works, not through circumcision, but through faith. Verses three and four then seem to take the next little question, objection, and answer or response. And this is when the complication begins to pick up as Peter, the apostle Peter, wrote about Paul's writings. Some of those things that he writes are hard to understand. And if we are not careful, humble in approaching it, we can twist those, misunderstand them to our own destruction. So verse three is the first of this challenge. So either a way of thinking of, okay, so perhaps some were unfaithful. Um, Again, not necessarily throwing all Jews under the bus of being unfaithful, but let's say that some were. Does that, that faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God to the whole nation? In other words, even if some Jews didn't hold up their side of the covenant, the expectation by man of God was that God shouldn't punish all of them. A false assumption, again, a problem the Jews had was thinking that if God was not going to save all of them, then he was condemning all of them. And even though his covenant was with the nation, God still graciously saved any one of them, every one of them, who held to the promise of forgiveness through a Messiah and a sacrifice and a lamb. In other words, just because one misunderstands a truth about God or about self, particularly in the area of something like sin, that doesn't make God unfaithful. It just makes the humans wrong. Schreiner notes the only explanation for any Jews being included in the covenant is God remaining true to his promises despite the sin that plagues the Jews. Verse four is Paul's answer then to this uh, hypothetical question or this questioning of God's faithfulness, and it's emphatic. I'm told it's the strongest language that he could use. By no means, absolutely not, certainly not. And it's a phrase he uses about 10 times in Romans uh, when he comes to something that he is truly wanting to 
object against, to put down his foot against. In other words, all kinds, thank you, all kinds of humans accuse God of not being faithful, but the full evidence, uh, when it's laid out, if it were laid out, would prove that God is true and faithful. So he uses a little phrase that's perhaps recognizable to us, and this is where it shows up in Scripture if you've not known where the address is. Let God be true or let God be proven or shown to be true even though everyone were a liar. A couple of ways that people have explained this that might be helpful. First of all, Ventura again. Even if all the people on the face of the planet were to agree that this were so, it would only prove one thing, that all the people on the face of the planet are liars. It doesn't prove that God is untrue. And then Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, if there were a trial and an examination of the things which God had done for the Jews and also of what they had done to him, the victory would be with God and all the right would be on his side. And here Paul now adds, it's his longest answer to any of the the objections, he adds a quote from Psalm 51. And we know Psalm 51 as a psalm of confession by David after his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And he is beginning to lay out the sorrowfulness uh, of his, over his sin. And so several things that he says here that are significant, and perhaps there's an intentional choice by Paul to say, let's just take the king you all elevate as the highest of all. And let's show that even in his thinking, he recognized there are consequences for transgressions. So I know my transgressions. I see them. I recognize them. I admit them. I realize I've fallen short of the law of God. And my sin is ever before me. I can't just wash it away. I can't wipe it out. I can't put it behind me. My guilt is there. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then David adds this explanation, which is the part that Paul quotes, so that you may be justified or proven right in your words, that your words will shown to be faithful, that you did not lie, that you did not misconstrue the covenant in any way, but you were abundantly clear about the blessings and the curses that would come within it. Perhaps here the Jews should have thought and prayed the way Nehemiah did with the Jews in his day, centuries before. He prayed this. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, priests, prophets, fathers, all our people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. Not one of these was a failure on your part, O God, to not uphold your part of the covenant that you made. You have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. And again, just the importance here of understanding and recognizing the sinfulness And the consequences of that, that so many of the Jews just couldn't see in light of holding to part of the covenant. 
Verses five and six then might give us our next little couplet of thought. It seems Paul is teasing this out a little bit further on the line of reasoning, speaking almost as if uh, he were an opponent to the gospel, but probably representing the voice. So he says at the end of this, I speak in a human way. In other words, I'm not, here's how it sounds if you're not applying the wisdom of God to a particular line of thinking, but instead are just letting your thinking go, uh, unfold, go move out. So the logic here of the human, the one who is not seeking God's wisdom but is putting forth their own wisdom is, if our unrighteousness, our sinning, our failing to keep the covenant serves to show or magnify or display the righteousness of God. In other words, if our sin, in contrast, makes God's righteousness pop with beauty and glory and amazement, then what shall we say? What conclusion can we draw? Isn't God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us if the ultimate goal of God is to be glorified in his righteousness and our sin displays his righteousness, why does he still condemn us? So that earlier quote, that our sin, nothing our sin hates more than to hear God say, I'm talking to you. Uh, there's, the sin here is just rising up and defending it. And basically it's the end justifies the means. That if sin glorifies God, then Sin is okay, or sin shouldn't be punished if the ultimate result is that God is glorified. Again, Ventura, if my sin makes God look good because it gives him an occasion to demonstrate his justice against me, have I not given him a grand opportunity to reveal himself as just? And if so, how then can it be right for him to condemn me? In other words, taking the logic further out, if we give God a platform to set forth as righteous through our sin, then in fact we should sin even more, make him look even better, and he should not hold us accountable to it. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Jews, speaking generally as a nation, had proved unfaithful to God's word and had never really understood his promises. This was especially true of the Messiah. And Paul's answer, rebuttal to that in verse 6, same thing as he had in verse 4. Strong, by no means. God never endorses evil as the means for him to be glorified. He can use it. He can bring about good through it. But he is not a proponent of sinning. In fact, he is just the opposite, completely opposed to it. And will ultimately be shown to be righteous when heaven is filled with only those who have been perfected by him. And Paul adds to this, this question. So he responds to questions with a question and works off of an assumption of the Jews. The Jews would agree totally that God will judge the world, the rest of the world, the Gentiles, the bad people. And, and Paul here turns that and says, if God is going to not punish the Jews for being unrighteous, how can he then be a righteous judge to condemn the rest of the world for being sinful uh, against him. So he's simply saying here that if you believe God will judge the Gentiles, then you need to, for unrighteousness, you need to believe that God will equally judge the Jews for unrighteousness. 
and the final go around. And whether this is pressing this thinking out even more, uh, this was the hardest one for me. Uh, but Paul seems to perhaps maybe personalize it here um, to himself because the pronouns now switch in verse 7 to I. And he asks a question, or the question, he poses a question. If through my lie, as one example, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Or Martin Lloyd-Jones paraphrased that. Here I am as a sinner, and my sin has made the truth, if my sin has made the truth of God stand out more abundantly, that well, why then am I also at the same time judged as a sinner? So Paul puts even himself into this category of being condemned as a sinner and why it is absolutely necessary for him, for any Jew, to believe, to repent of their sin, and to trust in the Messiah as a provision for that sin. Further question in verse 8, back to more general, um, why not do evil that good may come? Paul is going to address this again when, he, when we get to Romans 6. You might recognize this questioning line there. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because grace will always abound as greater than our sin. And his response, same one, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The desired and purposed effects of the law and of the gospel and of grace is that sin is eliminated, not indulged in or sought to have overlooked, even though the twisted logic of man about God and his nature and his works may convince them otherwise. And Paul seems here then with his blunt answer to be done. As if to say, enough about the objections. Because his final answer is very blunt, sounds very heartless at this point in, his, uh, in the argument. If you just take these four words, their condemnation is just. God's condemnation of Jews is fully in line with, and if you look back through everything in this section, fully in line with his oracles, his word, fully in line with his covenant, both blessings and curses, fully in line with his righteousness, fully in line with his faithfulness, fully in line with his justice, fully in line with his glory. Mankind, Gentiles, and even Jews have such a hard time understanding this. And I put this little phrasing up several Sundays now as we've worked through this, but I think it continues to be helpful that when we get it wrong at the very foundation, the holiness and righteousness of God, when we don't get that accurately, then everything else is distorted. And the first thing in that often is the wickedness or evil of sin, especially our own sin and sinfulness and evil. And then because of that, we don't see the punishment that God has for sin, the perishing, the condemnation, the day of wrath against sin. We can't see that as just because we don't see God's holiness and righteousness rightly. And the sad result of all of that is that we then don't see the need for Christ and faith in the gospel. So let's think a little bit about these first eight verses together, why they're here and so one of the questions we often ask is, what's the bigger context in which these truths are being housed? 
or as we've kind of noted, we're working toward a pinnacle, a finish line, a declaration, a conclusion, a thesis that was launched with Romans 1, 16 and 17, the power of God for salvation through faith and the righteousness of God through faith, uh, being received through faith. And this is a passage we've gone to several times, but hopefully it again, especially if you won't be here in January when we see the end result of where Paul is taking all this reasoning. For by the works of the law, by any human trying to keep the law perfectly, no human being will be justified in his sight. Jesus of Nazareth alone did that. Because what the law actually does is bring the knowledge of sin. It tells us what sin is, but doesn't give us the power to overcome it. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, and that's through Christ coming, the Messiah, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And here it is in a nutshell, the righteousness of God that's given and received through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Again, he circles back. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and we're justified only one way, by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood, what we'll think about just in a few moments around the Lord's table, to be received by faith. And then just a little bit later in Romans 3, toward the end of the chapter, this added thought. For we hold that, no, that one is justified by faith, and again, apart from the works of the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, not by their circumcision, by faith in Christ, and the uncircumcised through faith in Christ as well. Whoever you are, the oracles of God are clear. That salvation does not come to a person, Jew or Gentile, any other way than through faith and repentance. Won't you, if you have never done so, lay aside your efforts to be good enough to be received by God, knowing that you cannot be? And would you cling in faith to Christ and his sacrifice and his gift offered to us, his righteousness given to us through faith? The other thing we try to also do with most of these is just think about, so what are some messages in this section that would apply to us, assuming most of us are Gentiles, most of us are living outside of that Mosaic Covenant mindset. Um, and so three very brief ones, and then we'll gather around the Lord's table. First of all, recognize we're also entrusted with the oracles of God. In fact, far more oracles than Israel had, especially gospel-laden and Christ-laden oracles. So we have even greater advantages than the Jews that Paul is writing to at this time. So we too must be careful two ways. One, that we don't hold to human teachings of our favorite preachers, podcasters, authors, writers, that we don't come to believe those and cling to those over the pure, clear oracles or words of God himself. And secondly, that we must be careful not to overlook or ignore certain oracles that we either 
can't justify, can't, can't understand, uh, we don't really like, lots of people are telling us are wrong, etc. In fact, just in the last 10 days, I had a conversation with somebody who likes the mercy of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, but not the truth or the holiness or the hard words of Jesus. It is not ours to sit in judgment, back up if you would, Josh, on the oracles of God. It's ours to listen to and look at all of them with a carefulness to understand them and wherever needed for them to change our thoughts for us to have our minds renewed. So let's take full advantage of the advantage of the oracles of God that he has not given to everybody but has blessed us to have access to. Secondly, we must always make sure what we think about God is according to Scripture. How we understand Him, how we picture Him. All of Scripture, like we're not just pulling out a certain verse here or there because those support the parts of God that we like and are fully embrace, but to understand God and to watch constantly for misconceptions or misunderstandings. Um, Back in Colossians, a quote I shared uh, by Gavin Ortland was, the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of misunderstandings about God. We all have them, every one of us in this room. None of us has a perfect knowledge of God. But we must always seek to understand and know him according to how he has revealed himself in his word. Tozer warns us about this, both individually and as a church. Perverted or corrupted or incorrect notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high or its accurate opinion and view and understanding of God. And then third and finally, those who do not belong to God oppose or are against God, whether they admit to it or not, whether they realize it or not. Jesus just said clearly, if you are not for me, you are against me. And they will raise all kinds of arguments and questions. And we might say there are those who raise legitimate ones of personal concern, and there are those who are just loading up with ammo about every argument they've ever heard, a little bit of what Paul seemed to be addressing here, to just keep firing out. There is a fine line here of, are these arguments things they're truly holding to that are obstacles to them being able to understand the gospel and God rightly, or are these their defense, their wall, and they're not really looking for answers or wanting to reason, but simply wanting to bash and cut down Christ and the gospel. So we have to discern those things, but to recognize, and so then the warning of Jesus in Matthew 7, 7 is, don't throw pearls to swine who will trample on them and then attack you. But the sense also that Peter gives us of honoring Christ as holy and every truth about him as holy, and so seeking to be prepared 
by faith in him, by knowing his word, by thinking through the issues that the world is throwing at us to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason that the hope's in us. And they might not ask it in a nice way. But for us to be ready with the right gentle and respectful spirit to make a defense, to explain our God to him. And then just a reminder again from 2 Corinthians 10.5 that every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God ultimately needs to be destroyed, to be taken down in order for someone to truly come to him and be saved from the day of wrath.